Our scripture reading today is from Acts chapter 14, verses 8 through 20. Hear the word of the Lord. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice to the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. All right. Thank you, Bruce, for reading that, and Rachel for leading us in that prayer. Uh, We'll continue to pray for what's happening over there, and uh, keep watching the news. Lord, have mercy. Uh, Okay, so shifting gears a little bit. I want to read you a headline from the Kokomo Tribune. Uh, Kokomo, Indiana is the town we're talking about here. This is from December 21st, 1986. This is the Sunday paper above the fold article, front page. Couple trying to exercise Tipton's devil. Kokomo was the big town uh, next to my small town. So this was the town that had a mall, the town that had the movie theater, um, more fast food than just McDonald's. I was in eighth grade when this article came out. My brother was a freshman in high school, and the couple in question is my mother and father, and the devil in question is the mascot of the middle school and high school that my brother and I attended. If, you, if you're curious about the article, I have some copies of it up here. Uh, if you want to read what it says, here's the thing. My mascot in high school and middle school was the Tipton Blue Devils. And uh, my parents 
had become Christians uh, several years earlier, and they had this growing conviction about this mascot, and they began just kind of exploring uh, what, if any, action they could take to maybe see it change. And uh, so they wrote letters to um, all kinds of Christian organizations, and this was the heyday of contemporary Christian music superstars, and everybody came through town, and um, so a lot of Christian artists got, got letters as well um, from my parents, uh, my dad kind of leading the charge on this, uh, and the newspaper in Kokomo caught wind of this, and, and it led to uh, some strong opposition, as you might imagine. It also led to some surprising support as well, people coming up out of the woodwork. This was before Twitter. <laughs> Thank the Lord for that. Um, but this whole episode left my parents open to all kinds of criticism. And, and it wasn't really even that they were trying to launch some big public debate. They were, they were, just, they were writing letters to Christian leaders asking what they thought. And somehow the paper got hold of one. My, my parents were not troublemakers. My parents were not crusaders. And so I asked my dad, like, why did you, why is this happening? Why did you pursue this issue? Because I'm in eighth grade, right? And my brother's a freshman in high school. It's a, it's a providence that it was December 21st. It means that it came out the very beginning of Christmas break. We had, we had two weeks for kind of people to forget. Uh, that this happened. But I asked my dad why, and, and he said this to me. He said that they had this conviction that it isn't right to teach children to glorify the name of God's enemy in school when they were forbidden from glorifying the name of God in school. And so it was a matter of principle for my parents. And they felt that the Lord was calling them to contend here. And they didn't succeed, like it's still the Tipton Blue Devils there. They didn't succeed in changing the mascot. But one thing that they did do was they did contend for the glory of God in the face of opposition. And that seems to be rare. I don't know what you think of this story. Uh, I don't know if you would have agreed with my parents and said, sign me up. I don't know if you would have supported them or maybe come alongside them and said, look, you've got two boys in middle school and high school. Maybe this isn't the best timing uh, for this. But regardless of where you would fall on the issue, that's not why I told you the story. The reason I told the story is to ask a question. Is there any fight in you? Is there anything that bubbles up inside of you as a matter of conviction and principle that you would contend for? Is it, is it even right for a Christian to do this kind of thing? Uh, to stand up for what you believe in? Or, or are we supposed to be people who are kind of about the business, really, of turning the other cheek? I, I pray that when we look at the text, that... Bruce just read for us, that the Lord would ignite some fight in us, that we might contend for the glory of God, and that we would contend for the glory of God for the truth of his name, both in the face of opposition, but also in the face of words that are dripping in flattery. 
And so that's what we have here. We're going to talk about contending against opposition and also contending against earthly praise. Because that's what's happening here in this passage. By now we've stepped fully into view of the accept or reject nature of the gospel. We talked about that last week. Having been driven from Antioch by opposition there, Paul and Barnabas have made their way to the city of Iconium. They've, they've followed the regular pattern of teaching in the synagogue first and then going to the Gentiles. And Luke tells us that they spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Gentiles believed. But there's another pattern that's forming here. Um, and it's that many were rejecting Christ strongly. And what that rejection looked like was, was opposition and danger for Paul and Barnabas. They were stirring up people to revile the apostles. And we're also starting to see a pattern for how Paul and Barnabas are responding to this kind of opposition. When it comes, what do they do? In verse 3 of this chapter, which we didn't read, it says that the opposition came uh, when they were preaching. And so, in the face of opposition, what did they do? It says they remained there for a long time. They planted their feet in the face of opposition, speaking boldly for the Lord. They pushed back at the opposition, standing up and contending for the truth of the gospel. And they remained there for some time doing this, and the Lord was with them, and he was granting them the ability to perform signs and wonders, which was validating their witness, so that people might believe in them. Now, you just kind of have to stop at this point and appreciate the tenacity of Paul and Barnabas. Right? It, it reminds me of Jesus overturning the money changers' tables and then sticking around and teaching in the temple for the rest of that day. That for many of us, if we have a point to make, we want to make it and then get out of there, right? So that people can think about it, uh, but not necessarily, um, you know, lob their verbal grenades at us. Uh, but, but here is what they do they get this opposition, this, this opposition to the gospel, and they plant their feet and they stay. I mean, they could have become sullen. They could have said, you know what? We don't feel like we're appreciated here. Uh, and then moved on, but that's not what they did. And they didn't attempt to find middle ground either with those who were opposing the gospel. Instead, what they did is they stayed and they contended for the gospel. And the reason that they did was because many had come to faith. And these new converts needed Paul and Barnabas to stay and disciple them in that faith. And so when the unbelieving Jews and Gentiles tried to, quote, poison the minds of the people against Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas spoke even more boldly and even more resolutely than ever. Now, I'd like to be able to tell you that the uplifting story here is how they did this, and eventually the opposition came around and believed the message of the gospel as well, but that's just, that's not what happened. Rather, as Paul and Barnabas pushed back, the opposition got organized, and they began to plot to stone them to death. And when Paul and Barnabas learned of this, these are in the verses leading up to what we read today, they got out of there. They fled. Why? So that they might continue preaching the gospel, which is just what they did as they continued to move from Iconium to Lystra and Derbe. These are all cities in the region of Laconia. And they fled so that they could continue doing the very thing for which they were being opposed, preaching Christ and him crucified. It was a strategic move 
on their part to get out of there. It was a gospel-furthering move to depart. But even when they leave, we see that they stay in the region and they continue preaching. I think about what's happening uh, in Ukraine right now, and I'll be the first to tell you I'm not the guy that's going to write a think piece on what's happening in Russia and Ukraine. Um, I want to understand it, and I feel like I'm in second grade when it comes to understanding what's happening over there. If you are with me and you feel like, yeah, I might be in second grade, I ask you to also refrain from writing think pieces (laughs) about what's happening in Ukraine. It's not a good look, and it's not that helpful. But that being said, we're seeing people having to plant their feet and contend for what they know, what they believe, for their home, for what is right and just. And it's something for us, it's an an instructive moment for the world to watch what's happening right now. And again, I don't don't know, like I don't know how... how, uh, upright and just Ukraine is. I don't, I don't know anything about Ukraine, right? I'm learning, but I don't know a lot about that. But I know that they're on the receiving end of a tremendous amount of, of aggression and injustice, and they're fighting for their lives, and they're standing. And so I'm paying attention to that. I'm watching that. Because sometimes in this life, we have to do that. We have to contend against opposition in order to contend for the glory of God. But there's another kind of contending here that happens in this passage that may be a little bit more common for us to experience here in the West. And that is this contending against earthly praise that also comes their way. Because they, they move on and they come to the city of Lystra which appears to be a, a town that is, is dominated by worshiping uh, the Greek god Zeus. Uh, there's likely no synagogue in Lystra because they didn't go to a synagogue first. Uh, but Paul, what he does is he preaches to a gathered crowd. We don't really have a record of what he said, but we have a record of the response to what he said. And judging by the response of, what, of, of the people, one thing Paul must have spoken of was Jesus' power to heal the sick. And there was a man who had been lame since birth, listening intently, and Paul saw him, and he saw that, quote, he had the faith to be made well, which means that this man probably heard the message of the gospel and responded in faith to Christ. And Paul looked at him intently and said, stand up. And the man sprang up and started walking. Now, I wonder what that must have been like. I wonder, because in Acts you see this. You see the Lord performing signs and wonders through the ministry of the apostles. And we've talked about this many times in our series on Acts, that that part of the reason this is happening is to validate the witness of the apostles so that people would trust that they are there on God's behalf. And it's it's through these signs and wonders that tell them they're not just in their own power here. but even still, like if you're, if you're the Apostle Paul or Barnabas and you're nearing like a, a dozen miraculous healings, it must confuse a person's pride to, to, to do that, to have that experience, 
It must confuse your pride to be used of God in this way. Now, assuming that you've never miraculously healed somebody who was lame since birth, the question, the analogy for us is, what is the greatest thing you've ever done? What is something that you've done that people have come around you and patted you on the back and said, that was amazing? What is it for you? What is your greatest success in life? What do you want people to understand about it when they see the fruit of it? What did Paul and Barnabas want people to understand about the signs and wonders they performed when they saw the signs and wonders happen? What do you want people to understand about the cool thing that you do when people see the cool thing that you do? When the folks in Lystra saw the miracle, they responded with awe. And then they called out their response. What was their response? Paul and Barnabas didn't understand it initially because they were speaking in their own native tongue, but it soon became very obvious. They thought that Paul and Barnabas were Zeus and Hermes. And there was a local legend there in that town that Zeus and Hermes had visited Lystra once before and nobody recognized them. And they were not going to have that happen a second time. And so they did not want to repeat that mistake, and so they made plans to offer sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas, thinking they were Zeus and Hermes. And once Paul and Barnabas understood what was about to happen, they rushed out among the people, they tore their garments, and they begged them to stop. They said, don't do this. We are men just like you. We're people. Turn from these vanities to the living God who made the heavens and the earth. See, the people totally misunderstood the miracle. And they saw what happened and what they wanted to do instead is they wanted to worship Paul for it. And so they respond accordingly to what they know. This is what they know. That is superstition and a fear of upsetting the gods. That's how they're responding. But what does Paul do here? He doesn't just be like, whoa, whoa, there's been a misunderstanding here. He uses the misunderstanding as an occasion to clarify, as an occasion to preach Christ with even more clarity. And that's what misunderstanding will often do if we will plant our feet and endure the misunderstanding, is often misunderstanding will open a door to clarify truth. And so that's what Paul does here. And his message is very different from what he preached to the Jewish people. Here, when he starts to clarify, see, to the Jews, he would always begin with Abraham, and he would talk about references to their history and God's covenant. But here, to a crowd of pagans, see what he does. He goes back even further than Abraham. He goes all the way back to creation, where all people are united in their beginnings. And he says, the living God has covered his creation with evidence of his presence. Everywhere you look, beauty is everywhere, wonder is everywhere, majesty is everywhere. He's covered creation with evidence of his presence and he's blessed all of them with rains that have fallen and have raised the crops that have sustained their lives. And Paul says, worship him. Worship that God and worship him alone. Notice that Paul, in clarifying, is contending against another kind of opposition. 
And it's the hardest kind of opposition to want to contend against. And that is the praise of man. It's unlikely that any of us in this room have been mistaken for a god or a goddess. But many of us have been praised for things that we know full well God did. Um, Or we've been praised for things that are being um, overestimated by the one praising us. And the question is, how do you respond to that? What do you do? How do you respond when someone admires, you know, the behavior of your children? Because there's a party that wants to say, appreciate that. I'm glad you were able to see that. It's like that at home too, (laughs) right? Or when somebody admires your successes, or when somebody admires your consistency with something or your discipline with something? Do you find yourself getting more gratification out of those words of praise than from the fact that God has been pleased to bless your life and to work through it? How tragic would it have been if Paul had let the praises of man go to his head? But how do we prevent it? I mean, it's easy to say, you know, don't let people compliment you and then let that go to your head. How do we, how do we prevent it? How do we, how do we oppose loving the praise of others? It's only through really kind of fighting against it, which is another way of contending for the glory of God. And so how do we contend well? How do we contend for the truth of the gospel in the face of both opposition, but also in the face of flattery? I want to give three reasons as we conclude uh, this sermon. I'm looking at my notes here, and I'm looking at the clock, and I'm thinking, well, you guys got a short sermon today. Don't tell the kids. All right. How do we contend well? How do we contend for the truth of the gospel in the face of both opposition and flattery? Three, three ways. First, depend on Christ to lead and strengthen you. Don't presume that you're made of the kind of stuff already that can respond in humility to the praises of of man. We have to depend on Christ for this. We have to ask for this kind of help to lead us, to strengthen us, whether it's facing death or facing worship. Standing up to opposition is tiring. But in spite of the toll, what Paul and Barnabas seem to be making Uh, seem to be doing is making their decision based on what Christ has called them to do, what Christ has called them to be. And we can't do this for long on our own. We need to pray for God's strength to preserve us. Lord, if, if I find myself in a position where I become the object of somebody's praise, help me to understand that there's good in that, but that I'm not worthy of praise. I'm not worthy of ultimate praise. I might be worthy of being thanked, and it might be very appropriate to respond with a gracious, humble, you're welcome, but Lord, help me not lose sight of a humble posture and acknowledging that you work in time and space and you work through people. Help me to depend on you to lead me and to strengthen me, both when I'm opposed and when I'm complimented. 
Number two, contend for precision and clarity in your message. That's what Paul and Barnabas do here. We live in a time where somebody said, well, if, if they're praising Paul and Barnabas, thinking that they're Zeus and Hermes, maybe we don't need to correct it that much because it's, it's good that their minds are on spiritual things, right? No, what do they do? In both cases, people either sought to derail or to twist the apostles' message. And so they labored to make sure that they spoke with precision and clarity. They wanted to make sure that their words were accurate, but also that they were being understood by their audience. And so in Iconium, they contended against the poison words spoke against them. And in Lystra, they contended against the praise attributed to them. And what this means is we we really need to understand and to study the distinctives of Christianity. If our desire is to bear witness to the glory of God and the mercy of Christ, then one of the ways we contend against both opposition and earthly praise is through being people of the book, being people who have our noses in scripture, people who are familiar with the gospel of Jesus Christ, familiar enough to be able to say, the way that you, th- what you think the gospel is is not actually what the gospel is. But let's continue the conversation because I want to help you, I want to help clarify what the gospel actually is with you and for you. And so it means we need to study the distinctives of Christianity and then think carefully about how to express it so that we will be understood. And the third thing, the third way to contend well for the glory of God, which is contending against opposition and contending against earthly praise, is to pray for deep, deep humility in case you succeed. So if you win your brother or sister to the gospel, contend and pray for humility that we wouldn't let it go to our heads. I remember being once at a a conference and kind of at the beginning of the conference, there was an invitation for anybody who wanted prayer, which is great, right? Except that they had somebody who was sitting on the front row stand up and turn and face the room. And they said, if you would like prayer for any reason, we have this person in the room with us and they have a spiritual gift of prayer. And we would like to make them available for you to go pray with them. And I remember my head just kind of starting to spin. What is going on here? Like, what is, I mean, I understand that there are people, we have people in this room who are like, any opportunity you can give me to pray with other people, please, I love to do that. I love that. But it's another thing to stand in front of a room full of people to be recognized as somebody who's particularly good at this, right? If you are a person who has a sensitivity to the Spirit's leading, and it makes you somebody who is uh, comfortable in your own skin and engaging and inviting for people who need prayer, that is a beautiful, beautiful gift, Pray for humility as that gift strengthens. What other gifts do you have? What other gifts might the Lord use in this midst, in our midst? <laughs> it's funny that I just use people with a gift of prayer, like, 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 you know, like we're a room full of people who are just like really great at that. Um, 
There are so many things that, that we could take credit for that it's really the Lord wanting to work through our lives and bless other people with. So we contend for the love of God. It requires a singularity of purpose to do this, that Christ might be proclaimed, that Christ might be received, that Christ might be worshiped. It's natural to enjoy success, but we have to continually pray for the humility to always want the glory of Christ over our own glory. Because here's the thing, God is not sending us on a fool's errand when he says, go and testify about him. He's saying, you will be my witnesses in the world and you will make disciples. People will come to faith through your message. It will happen. The Lord will work through our message in that way. And so he's not sending us on a fool's errand thinking maybe every once in a while something positive may happen. No, he's saying, I mean to use you for this. I mean to use you to affect eternal change in the lives of others. May all the glory for that go to him and not us. How tragic would it be to think of ourselves as gods when the Lord means to use us for his glory? We have to be careful what we do with human praise. And so I pray that the Lord would build in us a deep conviction for the truth of his gospel. That opposition would not be a cause for us to shrink in standing true to the message of the mercy and grace of God given to us in the finished work of Christ. But may he also give us the clarity of mind to deepen our understanding of the gospel and, of, and, and a winsomeness of heart to express it with a clarity and a humility in a variety of situations. And may he guard our hearts from pride and use our lives then in the process of that to draw others to himself in a posture of humility as well. I pray that for us. We have the deck stacked against us, it feels like. It feels like our lives in this culture are often measured um, by how well-liked we are, whether it's social media likes or whether it's uh, how we do in our performance reviews at work or, or, or how people look up to us as parents or as uh, friends or spouses. There's so many things that are wanting to say, um, you, you know, prove your worth uh, by accomplishing things. And Paul and Barnabas found themselves in this position where they had a whole town that was looking at them and saying, this place is yours if you want it. Like, you're Zeus and Her Hermes. Um, we will bow down and worship you. We don't face it probably in, with that kind of intensity, but, but the enemy always loves to exploit a hunger and a desire in us to be loved like that. And so my prayer for us is that we would depend on Christ to lead and strengthen us as we go forth in his name, that he would give us the capacity to um, contend for precision and clarity in the message that we proclaim and that he would give us deep, deep humility for those times when we succeed. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for uh, the way that you, <laughs> you brought my parents into, into that strange story uh, of, that became newsworthy because they wanted to have a serious conversation about a mascot. 
at a high school. Uh, Lord, you use things like that in our lives to help us see with some clarity things to contend for, things to stand up for, how to do it, how not to do it. Everybody in this room, Lord, will, will face and does face uh, opportunities to seek after affirmation and praise uh, and to uh, find our identity in it. Lord, it's not wrong uh, for people to celebrate things that we do. It's not wrong for people to give us affirmation. It's not wrong for us to receive affirmation. Um, it is, though, Lord, a test of our character as your people to receive these things graciously and humbly and with a perspective that acknowledges that apart from your grace, we have nothing, but in your grace, all we have to offer is you. And so, Lord, would you give us a humility of of heart and spirit. Thank you for this room. Lord, I, I, I feel this morning the heaviness in myself and in, 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 in if I may be projecting on everybody else, but I don't think I am, that there's, just a, there's a gravity uh, to what's happening in the world right now. And, and so again, I echo Rachel's prayer uh, earlier. Lord, we pray for peace and we pray for strength and we pray for you to move, uh, for justice to prevail and, uh, and quickly. And it's in your name, Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.